I was just telling some people that um, I'm going to have to steal this scavenger hunt idea. It sounds like a lot of fun. Did everybody have a good time yeah. hanging out and doing it? Did you find out some new things about your city? Yeah. Okay. All right. That, that's, that's really interesting. I didn't know. It's a neat way to doing things. Um, so this afternoon um, is kind of like part two of this morning's message. And so um, we returned, if you will, to the context of the first century church and the unfolding of Christianity. We have two passages this morning. Uh, I mean, this afternoon, um, Ephesians second chapter, beginning at verse 11, and then Acts 17th chapter, beginning at 22. And what we see here again is the unfolding of Christianity. And at this point, it's pretty renegade. Many people look upon it as the liberal version of Judaism. And what we also saw last time in the diverse world of Roman Greco rule and culture, Christianity, which had at its head Jesus, was still trying to find its feet and its body identity and how it would actually function. And God, through the ministry of the Apostle Paul, author of most of the New Testament and author and central character of our scripture passage today, was proposing what could, according to Orthodox Jews of the day, be considered freakish. God was the church with, God wanted the church to have as its head, Christ, to be a part of this Frankenstein, can't think of a better word, Frankenstein faith community. Jesus' head in a body of inclusion and integration, the engrafting of Gentiles and Greeks and non-Jews and non-Palestinians. And, and Jesus was sending the apostle on, on his missionary journeys to fit further dig up the multi-ethnic pieces out of what I would describe as their pagan graveyards. As Ephesians declared, declares, those people, as far as their faith heritages were concerned, those people separated without God, dead, far. Not now God was calling those people to be attached, connected to the head, which is Christ, and with that also to each other. Christianity in the church then and now is and should be more and more a freak show. Amen. A Frankenstein. <laughs> Amen an awesome and glorious and ironically beautiful monstrosity of histories and heritages and ethnicities and gender and culture and class. A revolutionary thought that life could be and exist in diversity, that it's alive. All because there was reconciling and powerful love and grace to and through the body from the head, which is Jesus. 
And thus Paul's, the, the New Testament, Dr. Frankenstein's revolutionary mission and message would have, hit, would have him leave Jerusalem in the safety of its temple-centered Jewish-based culture and infiltrate deep into the Greek world like we see Paul in our Acts passage in Athens speaking to the philosophers of the Greek word, world in Areopagus. And I will not give this passage much its due as it could be. I will kind of be broad stroking this passage and the Ephesians passage, and we are doing something that we're encouraged not to do as we preach, but I'm a cherry pick anyway. But I promise I uphold its integrity. In his visit to Areopagus in Acts, Paul finds people who are what I would describe as doubly separated from God as, can, I mean, according to the Jews, right? They were not Jews. They were not even God-fearers, like Cornelius, whom we heard about the last time, a Gentile who believed in the God of the Jews. These crazy Greeks were idol worshipers and had gone so far as to leave room for a yet-to-be-discovered and unknown God. A pedestal was sitting there for the unknown and unexplainable deity. They were so smart, they would not be cornered as small-minded know-it-alls, but let's get to the point here. Standing among the greatest thinkers, Paul makes this argument for the presence of one true and living God. He says this, beginning at verse 22, in chapter 17 of Acts. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said... Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made this wor the world and everything in it, being Lord of the heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on, live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods, the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Paul is telling these Greeks that in other words, if you are here, it is a sure sign there is a God here. And that God is the one who made y'all. And, and Paul goes racial on them and basically says this, from one man we all come. But God, God allowed and pushed and promoted cultural and ethnic evolution, if you will. And, and your idol worship, you are, up, are, are holding up, in your idol worship, you are holding up the struggle of God's progressive gospel dignity to mankind. That, that guess what? You should be able to agree that there is no culture, no history, no heritage, no ethnicity, no generation, no people group that are a mistake that the diversity that you represent and make happen on earth is no mistake. That first, wherever you are and whoever you are and however you are, 
and whenever you are or were and will be is resultant of the image of God, the created image of God given to all human beings expressing itself as God intended all over the place, y'all, all over history, all over the globe, in all shapes and sizes and colors and characteristics, developing with it the, the beautiful progression of ethnicity and culture that God called each one of us and our ancestors and descendants to, that God called us as humans to cope and adapt, to express and challenge and reflect where and when and how we were born and who we were born to and the circumstances of our families and age that we were exposed to and according to the word that you and them and us that result the culture and the thinking and the musical taste and the food and the dialects, the nose and body shapes, the skin, all of that gives birth to how we view each other, view ourselves in each other and then the Lord. So whether you have a big nose or a small nose, or you all almondy, or real vanilla, or a nice caramel brown, whether you think the wing or breast is the prize pot part of the chicken in the box, whether you like your bass to go boom or resonate with the folky twang, it is all about being where and who God has put you and called you. Let me say this, there is no one like you and y'all and us and them. The diversity that we see on earth is not a mistake. The hand of God is in it and on each one of us and all the groups of us. Diversity from one man, Adam, was God's intention for us. We are supposed to be different. On God's iPod, he has Beyonce, Carrie Underwood, Adele, and Bach, right? And the shuffle of the master producer of all sights and sounds, all done according to his divine purpose. And thus Paul says that God, the one who sovereignly guides and designs and designates who we are is therefore not far from any group or culture of people. In his image, in his created design and sovereignty, he is near us because we bear and express in right and good ways the design God dignifying image, everyone, everywhere. And Paul goes on later to quote one of their poets in verse 35. He's saying, it is also no mistake then, here's the hard side of the gospel, right? It's no mistake that out of and in our stories, our cultures, our histories, our families, that stuff comes that also separates us from God. That helps create distance and sin from God that separates us from each other. That all sorts of broken and messed up views and unfortunate things that happen to us and between our people groups in history and that abuses and neglect and prejudice and sexism and classisms have even come along and misshaped us and our cultures that God designed. Some of us think we are less or better. 
our views on women and sexuality and politics and economics and race and ethnicity and ourselves and spiritual matters are bent and twisted and we have blind spots and damaged places that make, make us hate and ignore ourselves and each other. And those things have made us who we are. We and they, therefore, whoever they are, are all beautiful, but broken culture and ethnicity and humanity. And therefore, it's safe to say that there is no one, no people grouping, no race, no ethnicity, near enough or too far from God to be or need to be redeemed, to be reconciled and restored and recognized and thus used and changed by God to be revolutionary to our humanity, we, the church is called to make a, make a difference because the God of the Bible is the God of diversity and eclecticness and at the same time, the Savior and Lord of that diversity. But keeping with the metaphorical theme of Frankensteining this thing, God through Paul takes what he pontificated with his intellectual friends up there at Oropagus University and takes it to the church. In his message to the Ephesians, he writes this beginning at chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens, citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. And it goes on to say this, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery is made known to me by revelation as I, was written, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. 
God was calling for more than a mere recognition of diversity that we talked about at Aeropagus. He wasn't just giving, giving a good speech at the college. The game was not over. God was calling Paul to promote the building now, right? Out of this theory that, that we're all close to God and we all bear the image and we're all broken and we all like to go around saying that. It makes us seem smart. But Paul was saying in promoting the building, the sewing together of these far off and near people into one body. To, to, to have that thing, to have that theory, walking around and living together. Now y'all know that what Paul was proposing here in the way of eclectic diverse community was the stuff of late night giddy deep conversations and to imagine or promote it as reality, not just eclectic humanity, but eclectic community was the stuff of a madman who had a God complex. But what we see here in his letter to a church, Paul started, that Paul started in Asia Minor, it was more than a God complex, this was a God calling for his design eclecticness to be in and define church community. Of actually having Jews and Gentiles together. Now understand that what Paul wrote and proposed here was like, like one of those well-meaning and entitled bestsellers everyone talks about and reads but never happens. In a pagan, non-Jewish world, Paul was getting the that's all right, baby, or bless your heart, honey. Because when Paul is talking here about breaking down the wall of hostility, in particular between Jew and Gentile, but not, no ordinary Jew and Gentile, because many in Ephesus would have been diaspora Jews, not even their hometown Jews, right? And you know how y'all act when you are the minority. You go hardcore ethnic in your stuff. You make the black table in your culture, right? You circle the wagons in Native American territory. The tension is great here. And then the Gentiles in Ephesus were all about their freedoms, their religious freedoms, and Paul is telling this group to come together. And there were some real issues here. Because when he talks about the dividing wall in verse 14, he was talking about the way the temple was designed back then, right? There were different courts in the temple. When they would come to worship God, each one further away from the presence of God in the blood sacrifice. They'd put up these walls or, or a wall of, of whatever to stop Gentile believers and believers in God of Abraham from coming past a Gentiles or, or those who weren't, believe, weren't Jews from coming past a point and with it women believers from going past a point and children. And the Jews, as prejudiced as that may have sounded, had a point in having the walls. Gentiles didn't know how to act in church. They were ethnically not chosen by God, right? They weren't pure enough. Their culture brought all sorts of pagan ways. They ate all sorts of offensive to the ceremonial law of God stuff. It was a wall to enforce obedience to ceremonial and cultural laws. Okay, what am I talking about? If you were from the South, the old churches in Charleston had the balconies. That's where the black people sat. The slave seating. 
This was Jim Crow up in the temple, and the signs would imply that if you came any further, you take your life at your own risk. In other words, don't be, be surprised if someone comes and tells you, go back to where you belong. So when Paul was talking about breaking down the wall of hostility, he was talking about having no more balconies in church, no more white and black water fountains. He was talking about being more than friends, but living and worshiping and being like family with people that showed hatred and cultural disrespect respect towards you, not making your your own thing, but to be one thing. Look at verses 15 and 17 in chapter 2. He says this, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he, Christ, might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. It might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, therefore killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Now this passage comes from an Old Testament scripture and Paul is teaching that God through the gospel of Jesus was abolishing the ceremonial laws, is breaking, abolishing the ceremonial laws, is breaking down the wall and calling those who are far off and near, he's making reference to those who are far and near and on the near side of the wall to come to a new place a new gathering reality. But based on what he said in Athens, Paul was saying those whose cultures in whatever way you may define near or far away from God, come close to Christ and be in a new place with each other. To be integrated. To be who you are, but together to be the diversity you are together. This isn't too hard or complicated to understand, y'all. It's just hard to accept for many. Paul is saying we should be free to be community together and a worshiping community together. We think about Jew and Gentile here. I want you to know that most here, ethnically speaking, as I look around this room, are Gentiles. But for us to understand how this works, culturally, ethnically, or socially, we all consider ourselves or consider ourselves to be Jew and Gentile in some way, right? We are all near and close in some way. Culturally, right? That's what we kind of understood from being made in the image and likeness of God. But we have put up walls between us and our sense of God-giving identity against and between others in some way. And all of us have experienced walls being put up to us as those who lack or have too much of something or look a certain way or bring others down in some way. We all live behind walls of hostility, whether we or histories find ourselves or our histories have put those walls up. We have built walls of ignorance and fear and hatred and self-righteous protection of who we are. We've put walls up of survival. Survival of our cultures and heritages in ways that are good, like many of the Jews against the Gentiles that Paul himself describes as being without God. You've heard the term about the most segregated time of the week is Sunday. But thinking about this, 
You're thinking about kind of the history of the balcony. And um, do you know it eventually came to a place where they no longer would have balconies. They just decided to build other churches. There's a weird, like, there's two churches in Charleston. I did some, his, some study on um, Zion Presbyterian Church, which is an African-American church in Charleston after, uh, uh, built somewhere in, 18, in 1860s. It was the largest Presbyterian church in the country. 1,200 African-Americans. Who were the slave and slave descendants of those who went to Second Presbyterian Church? Of course, they had a white pastor, and you couldn't have, you had to have all white elders. You couldn't ordain African-American. They just thought like that. They felt like it was no longer good to have these free slaves in the balcony. They needed their own building. It went from we can worship together as long as you knew you were less than me to, wow, you're beginning to get a sense of your dignity you're scary to worship with now because you're feeling like you're equal to me in Christ. And socially, why is it when we look at the South that segregation happens, especially after slavery is over? In one church in Charleston, um, if you go on my dad's tour, he'll show you, there's a Methodist church, a big, nice Methodist church, white church, and then there's a black Methodist church right around a corner from it. And they all have, and many of the families have the same last name. They're related by blood, some of them. But they can't worship together. Walls. What's going on? It can hit me. If you remove walls, you can create too much intimacy. And those who you think are less than you or you're afraid of might be able to see your brokenness before Christ. I was reading some old document and it said it was hard for a slave master to confess his sins in front of those he owned. It was hard for one group to confess their sins in front of those they discriminated against. When you break down the walls, that kind of me and God, security and intimacy, that's kind of like this mix of I believe in Jesus, but I also am kind of leaning on my own sense of self-worth or righteousness somewhere else, that stuff gets exposed when you're up and against somebody else, when that wall comes down, it's like nakedness. And it's hard to live there. Man, truth be told, we scare each other. We scare each other because we might steal or demean your God identity given, uh, God given worth and, and we may make fun of how you are culturally or ethnic, ethnically based on, based on um, how God has reached you and, and, and we fear that experience. 
That's why ethnic groups don't want relationships. We're afraid that if I let you across this wall, my ethnic wall, my cultural wall, my sense of God worth, you might hurt me or crush me or steal or denigrate or stereotype or generalize or guilt me or act, dare I say it, like those without God against my God-given, designed, diverse culture. And I I think about how theology works sometimes. And, uh, you know, I, I think we fool ourselves in some of our seminaries that, that, that the information we give in the way we talk about how God works, like somehow it isn't culturally tied in. It is. And so many times, the way things are expressed about what God is doing theologically, as people describe it in plain terms, as they begin to tell stories about what the theology they believe actually means and what it does for them and how they apply it, so many times when you expose yourself to that, you begin to hate your culture as somehow, you know, the black church didn't have it. Or this church is more liberal, or this church is more that, and it's a cultural view of it. That somehow God didn't hate greed, doesn't hate greed as much as he hates another kind of sin. That somehow capitalism, right, is biblical. Who told you that? Or that democracy is God-given and true and right. Who told you that? Or that our, ver- our, our version of American Christianity is the right version. Why do you think that? The worst thing you can do to those perceptions is break the wall down and worship together and be a community together. Walls protect and provide justice for us. Give me a wall so I can stay me and stay alive and you can't damage or misunderstand me or hurt me with your words or cloud how I experience God or how I think God might see me in good and right ways. Policing that God is, has, and is going to bring that wall of security we have down. Your wall of security and personal justice, a wall that has been built and constructed from years of abuse and hatred and misunderstandings and injustices and historical systematic atrocities against diverse groups of people, to bring, God is going to bring those walls down to bring peace in them and between the people on opposite sides of it. How does he do this? Look with me again at verse 14 in Ephesians chapter 2. For he himself is our peace. Who has made us both one. And has broken down in his flesh. The dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. 
For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the house of the God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. And then I'm going to go back on verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Okay, Paul has mixed up all sort of metaphors here to describe the, the revolution of eclectic community. He's got temple and he's got body, he's got citizenship and he has ears. Let me put it this way. When Jesus is described as a chief cornerstone, stone, with, with all due respect, Jesus is a rolling cor- cornerstone because what Paul is teaching and affirming that God is near to even those we deem far off ethnically or otherwise, that he, Jesus, has gone out in the message of redemption and brought home and adopted in all sorts of people from all over the place and said like Paul to the Jews, this is your brother and this is your sister. That message of God's love for all people through Jesus has made us a Brady Bunch, right? Slash different strokes. I'm so old, y'all, I'm sorry. The gospel makes and calls us diverse people to be a family and that changes everything. It makes the walls come down. Have some families in our church, many, who've adopted children. One family in particular, been with us from the very beginning, helped plant the church. Adopted child from Guatemala. It's a pretty conservative family, politically. We're pretty mixed up at Christ Central, just so y'all know. We've got some Republicans, some Democrats, some anarchists. I don't know how, who they are. I, I don't know how they that, but anyway. We try to be, I try to be politically anonymous. I'm a red independent. I don't want anybody to think God's with anybody. You know. You know who God's with? The person who wins when they finally win, right? We knew that was God ordained. What? Can't believe it. Gotta pray for him. Anyway, we're not getting into that discussion. It's a pretty conservative family. You could kind of guess what side of the immigration, undocumented, documented side they were on until they adopted two Hispanic children. And now they're an advocate. They are advocates against Hispanic hatred, immigration hatred, by people. I'm like, how do y'all get like that? I knew where y'all were on the issue. Why do y'all love Brown now? What happened? She said this. I could not bear someone discriminating against my son and my daughter. Adoption changes everything. They fight a battle that is not theirs because those that weren't theirs are now theirs. 
we fight a battle for our brothers and sisters in the Lord because we all have been adopted by the eclectic community God has called us to, and now we family. Your issue is my issue. We're one body. What does that mean? I feel you. And if I don't, I'm going to learn to. Because Christ has chosen you. You're in the body. What am I supposed to do with that? But recognize you are my brother and sister adopted. You're in, and I'm adopted too. Nobody should really belong here or, or deserves to be here. Here we are. What that means is that in your eclectic, diverse community, as you adopt and own and repent and struggle to understand the histories and cultures and genders and sexualities of each other, to hear and live in each other's stories, we are called to not sample our faith, sample our religions, I mean, sorry, sample our cultures, but to bear, like the apostle here, to bear the weight to get our hearts tied up in an alien struggle and an alien fear and an alien injustice because as one humanity, we embrace it and, and their, and their fa- farness and nearness is something we are called to repent and restore and re- bring redemption to the world around us. We own it. We own each other. We are and will work for social justice because it is a sinful power that hurts our brothers and sisters and all that we and therefore they stand in and for, which means this, hostility is challenged and hatred is halted. To, like Paul, be committed to break the hostility, that's what it means to be community. You can't hate Middle Easterners. You can't call folk terrorists and derogatory terms. In my community, one of my best friends is Asa Rafidi, my Palestinian brother, who looks like the people we want to stop from immigrating over here have to see justice for the Palestinian as well as the Jew. Did you know that there are more Christian Palestinians who suffer ethnic hatred from Jews than you may want to know about, right? My friend Asa, his mom was a Christian Palestinian. She was riding a bus over there and a group of Jews pushed her down, kicked her, and she lost the baby she was pregnant with. And yet my evangelical brothers and sisters say, you must support, you can't support Palestine, you must support Israel. How can we create that dividing wall of hostility when brothers and sisters are on both sides of that wall? Did you know who's seeking to immigrate out of these, immigrate out these uh, uh, Palestinian countries that, that we're like, we don't know if we want them over here because they might do something wrong? The large percentage of them are Christians. Your brothers and sisters in the Lord. 
I, um, our church shares a building with Project 658, and they are a ministry that, that, that ministers to refugees that, that move into the area. And some of these folk have been in refugee camps for seven, like I met his pastor, he lived under a tree in a refugee camp for 17 years waiting to get out, waiting to find a country that accept them. And because America's gotten this way and so many Christians, the church is saying, no, don't let them come. Your brother and sister in the faith could not come to a place of safety. We family now, y'all. We're part of a church universal. Dividing lines. The walls of hostility between countries and nations and ethnicities. It's over for you once you become a believer. You can't stand ultimately on any side against any group of people. I try to tell people this, and this is a hard thing for us to hear. I mean, I got some people in our church who Got the picture of Santa Claus with the flag in the back, you know, and little baby Jesus too. America's not gonna last forever. How does that sound? This is not God's nation. America's not God's country. He's shown us the body of Christ, the church universal of Christ as its head is the nation eternal. There should not even be, there, there can't be a hint of dividing wall between us even in a national or international way. I can't show blind allegiance to any political system without knowing how it impacts and put walls that, that Christ has torn down against my brothers and sisters. And if you have to vote for somebody and you know it hurts your brothers and sisters, it's just, you know, you got them on both sides, you need to be honest and humbled by what that does that we're looking for heaven, that right now it's gonna hurt somebody who trusts in Christ. It makes sense what Paul talks about here in chapter three about bearing the Gentile burden. Me and community, I mean, I'm committed and you have to be to stopping you from having to live behind walls I think about the fight we have as one body. If you hurt as one body, I will, I'm committed to fight against all that hurts because I believe what the gospel has done in calling us to be one. This is an interesting example, especially all this going on in North Carolina. And note that we have a large gay community. And I prayed to the Lord, Lord, 
I want you to draw even those in the gay community, please, to our church. We're here. And I began to have a relationship with a lady by the name of Mary Jo. And um, she and I met for like two years, lunches, and she would tell me about her sexuality and how uh, afraid she was. And, um, being in a church like ours, and she says, I really appreciate the gospel you preach. And, and then it came time when she said, you know, I, I, I want to join this church. And I said, are you ready to take down the wall of hostility? Me? Hostile? What do you mean? I said, look, in our congregation, no one's sexuality is off limits to Christ. <laughs> not even mine. Just because I'm heterosexual does not mean I have it together. Our sexuality is regardless at our church. We're not there yet. Nobody. I'm married. I'm not there yet. I'm still figuring it out. Christ is still sanctifying me in this area. I'll tell you what. I'm going to put the sanctification of my heterosexuality on the table for Christ to deal with in whatever way he chooses. Will you put yours? I'm not asking you to tell me right now how you're going to change and how dramatically you're going to change your life. I just want to know whether there's, there is no wall of, of hostility. There's no division of who's greater and who's better and who has to progress more, who has to progress less. I want to know, can we live with a dividing wall of hostility not there and, and, and lay our sexualities on the table with everybody else in the body? Because I'm going to tell you, there is one person in my congregation I cannot control when they seek to sanctify us, and that's Christ. And I'm not safe either. And she said, I have to keep living behind my wall. I can't take it down. We have to call people to a place where a wall of hostility because of the way the sanctification of their sexuality has to happen, we have to take that wall of hostility down too and give equal opportunity to be sanctified and cared for in Christ Jesus. It's a touchy one. But if there's a wall of hostility against somebody because of the type of sin they struggle with, there's a problem with that. I'm not here to tell you that, that that's okay for her to live that way. I'm not saying all of that. I'm saying it's not okay for you to put a wall against someone because of the way, however, they've developed and sin has come into them. I, I don't put a wall of hostility but for, for greedy capitalistic people to come into the church, do I? We don't look at people's tax forms and say how greedy you've been. Right? 
We don't say, have you cheated on your taxes this year? We don't do that. If you don't, you can't join the church. I know it's a little different, y'all, but I'm just saying, walls of hostility. We can't separate people from the blood sacrifice of Christ because of how they struggle or how the history's bent and twisted. It's done it to all of us. And now Christ is adopting us in into a new place. Let's look at verse 19 again. It sits here. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, and whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. This one being a place God can truly dwell in and between us, which tells us the real wall we fight against is the wall that stops us from being free to enjoy and experience God's redemption and love. Why is this important to Paul and to us? Because prejudices hurt our relationship with God and disease and twist the message of the gospel, which is that through Jesus, right, that, that there can't be those far or near from God because of some sort of human or cultural construct like circumcision in verse 11 issue, that our differences in race and ethnicity and gender can't be and isn't a barrier to the gospel in redeeming us, to redeeming our culture. Now, I want to be careful here because I am just giving some... I'm just giving you some kind of fairy tale, right? Uh, a la Ebony and Ivory, we all just get together. If, if, if I just leave it like that, that's what we're talking about. If we just say, let's just live together in a house together. Let's just do it that way. I am talking about a revolution, eclectic community reality in here. This is no theory. This is no Coca-Cola commercial. I'm not pro prognosticating um, something like that. This is the work of Jesus. So like the apostle, I am commanding it in this church and in this city, and, and, and your pastors are ordering and calling you to do it. Because we have a living, real head and leader in Christ Jesus who came and died to be the head of this monstrosity mess of eclectic community called the church. Not he is sort of like the head and body and lifeblood of this thing. No, the Bible is teaching he really came and died and suffered injustice and hatred and lived in the pain of the barrier of sin between us and God so that the walls of hostility could be brought down between us because it is brought down between us and God through Jesus as part of what it means to be a believer in the church. That those who thought they were near being so far away in their own sense of self-protection, wall building, and for those ways we can be far away can be brought and found as near to God because from now on it is by grace we have and will be saved and nothing else. Not race or ethnicity or culture or sexuality or financial situation or gender or political party or what part of town we live in but by the love and gospel of Jesus Christ. Which means nothing. No culture. No wall, no ethnicity, no imposed historic inferiority or abuse or suffering at the hands of another group. No language or gender barrier can stop the gospel and power of Jesus to bring us to him and then to each other. Nothing. 
I don't care where you are and where you aren't and who you are and who you think you may not be. Jesus, the gospel, the message and power of God's love, redemption of sinners of people is real and redeeming and reconciling and revolutionary and possible for all and promise for many. You're freed. You're free to desire it. You know, it gets tiring being this kind of church. I mean, I remember along the way, we were just like, this is dumb. Let's just forget it. It's too hard. Maybe we shouldn't desire this. Maybe we shouldn't have what Martin Luther King Jr. called divine dissatisfaction, right? Maybe we shouldn't live in the already not yet. Let's, let's just give up. It's too difficult, man. It was hard enough with, with the ethnicity thing. Now we got other stuff coming in, people from different ec- economics and different parts of town. Forget this. This is ridiculous. You know what we were saying? Maybe Jesus can't handle it. He handled you. He can handle them. And he can handle the us that will become. Because he's broken down the wall of hostility between us and God. Believe in it. Work for it. Lose sleep over it. Live in it. Risk for it. Go and bring and do the work of reconciling gospel everywhere and to every one. With the confidence of a God who brought down the walls of a humanity that was far from being him, from him, to bring them near. It's a New South revolution. I give you this, leave you with this. See if I'm finding the right thing here. Verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've called us to live together in community, to actually go out on a take down the walls, and then expect Jesus to act or work. In this church, right here, Christ Central Durham, right here, Lord, real people, real lives, new people coming in, all kind of problems, all kind of ethnicities, all kind of sexual struggles, all kind of stuff that right now your people in here have walls against have doubts about. 
but whether you can call them, whether Christ can redeem, not only them, but the feelings we have toward them. Lord, I thank you that you're the chief cornerstone of this church. We thank you that your power works through Christ central Durham. And that you are bringing down walls in the hearts of people, not only between each other, but between you and them. Help them to know how you adopted them, how they are nothing near the love that we see in the Godhead. And yet you welcomed us all in as children by your grace and power. We need you, Lord, so that the walls of hostility can come down. This we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.